open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. We didn't finish the 41st chapter as of last Sunday evening. We got down to verse 18. Read verse 17 and 18 and pick up. In verse 17 it says, When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land springs of water. And we talked about God opening up the the water out of the rock in the in the wilderness for Moses and the children of Israel. And how that he spoke to the rock the second time and that the waters of salvation are freely provided for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember he told the woman of Samaria, I will give unto you living water. And so he did that. But verse 19 is where we're to pick up. The 19th verse. Now then, during the, uh, before we get into that verse, during the uh, exile, much of the land of Israel lay fallow. God would take this land though and that had not been cared for and make it a forest with a variety of trees. And so we see in verse uh, 19, he says, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shittah tree, the myr- and the myrtle, and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the fir tree, and the pine, and the box tree together, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord hath done this, and the Holy One of Israel hath created it. Now can you imagine... He says here, I will plant in the wilderness. Trees planted. Can you imagine someone planting the trees in the wilderness? That's not a good place to plant. But God says, I'm going to plant them in the wilderness. And you know, he does things that's extraordinary. And uh, he speaks of the trees, and I'll try to define them and then give you a little spiritual uh, application to them. Uh, The Shittah, or rather the acacia from which gum Arabia is obtained, is a tree native to Sinai and also to Palestine. The oil tree, the oil refers to the olive, the olive tree. And then the fir tree refers to pines or juniper. And the pine or fir. And then the box tree is the cypress. And the species of these trees are not precisely understood. Nevertheless, the abundance of water in the presence of trees would signify God's blessings on, on the land, and especially in the wilderness. You know, it says in verse 19, I will plant in the wilderness. And when we think of the fact that God says, I will plant, it reminds us of Psalm 1. He says, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which bringeth forth his fruit in his season. So this is the Christian, the child of God, that God blesses. And if you'll remember that those blessings come as a result of the Lord's planning. But to look at these trees specifically, notice in verse 19, he says, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar. The cedar speaks of majesty and dignity. The majestic cedars of the of Lebanon, they were called. And they were uh, spoken of in terms of majesty and dignity. And Shittim, of which the ark is made, partly made, speaks of incorruptibility. Remember, God told Noah to make an ark, an ark, rather. And it was partly of that because He says, pitch it within and without with pitch in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. And by the way, though He took the wood, this particular wood, and made the ark, 
yet it was covered within and without with, with pitch. We'd call it today is like we put on the roofs, and I hate to mention roofs right now. But anyway, that old black stuff, you know, you smear on and you seal up all the cracks, and we call it uh, plastic cement now. They've called it everything I guess there is in the book. But anyway, you know, you put enough of that on there and it'll seal out the water. The trouble is, most people use too a small amount of it and it doesn't do anything. It dries up and cracks open. I remember one time I was up in the Upper Canyon, right where that Jack's uh, Burger place and that little old building next to it before they renewed it and built on the old Barrett place. And uh, Mr. Barrett had had about four or five contractors out there to fix his roof. And he said they'd come out with a little old quart can of that uh, black cement around that fireplace. And he says, I've had those guys to fix that uh, several times. Well, I had come out there, and I didn't know what he did till he till after I fixed it. And I had a five-gallon bucket, and I took a trowel, and I put that stuff on thick enough and all around. And he says, now I know why it never worked. They never used enough of it. But anyway, the pitch, back to the Noah story... It was pitched within and without with pitch. And the word pitch means a cover. And figuratively, it speaks of a, a redemption price or atonement. So, in other words, the, the ark uh, was covered. It was made of wood, but it was covered and pitched within and without with pitch. And speaking of a covering, that is typical of our redemption or atonement. And so we, we can be thankful that we have that as well. But back to these trees. Now, notice it says the cedar tree, the shedder tree, and the myrtle. Now then, we said the uh, cedar speaks of majesty and dignity. Shittim speaks of, uh, uh, of incorruptibility. And uh, of the myrtle tree, prophetically, Zechariah speaks of it in uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Three times over, he speaks of the myrtle tree. It tells of that lowliness that every Christian should possess. The tree of the people, the true people of God possess that lowliness. And the myrtle tree speaks of lowliness that all of us should possess. And then we have also the uh, oil tree or olive oil. And there may be all, uh, these may be all blended together to be uh, together by the oil tree, which is a clear uh, figure of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Remember, uh, thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. And we find that Jesus was anointed uh, as the Son of God. And it says uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, uh, concerning Christ, thou hast anointed him with the oil of gladness above his fellows. And so that speaks of his spiritual anointing. And you and I need special spiritual anointing for everything we do in the service of God. And all of these uh, really all tell of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and point to Him as the one that has all these things uh, working in and through Him. So all these trees are very significant. But the 20th verse says that they may see. God says, I'm going to plant these trees in the wilderness that they may see and know. Look at all these words. They may see, underline see. Know, consider, understand. When you study a verse of Scripture like this, look at how many aspects. He says, I want them to see it. I want them to know it. I want them to consider it and to understand it together. See, know, consider, understand. And what is it that he wants them? 
that the hand of the Lord hath done this. In other words, that God would have to plant trees in a wilderness and that they would prosper and be so fruitful and be so uh, uh, great a forest of trees. We're like the planting of the Lord. You and I are as individual Christians. And we're trees in His forest and He's planted us. We have a divine planting. That's why we're here. And that's why that we flourish because we're like the tree, Psalm 1, that is planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth His fruit in His season. His leaf also shall not wither and whatsoever He doeth shall prosper. It says the ungodly are not so, but are like the chap which the wind driveth away. So God's people are like that. And He says... The hand of the Lord has done this, and the Holy One of Israel has created it. So we get a, a very wonderful picture in these two verses, don't we? Now look at verse 21. Verse 21. It says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the King of Jacob. What's he saying here? Set forth your case, produce your cause. Illustrating the legal nature of this Hebrew word. It comes from a Hebrew word, R-I-B. The gods are being challenged. Had any of them especially, uh, Nabu, God of prophecy, been able to predict the coming of Cyrus? They hadn't been able to predict anything. But he says, Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith uh, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what shall happen. In other words, they couldn't show what would happen. The devotees of these gods are asked to bring them forward and see if they understand the meaning of the past events and how they fit into the future. And they certainly could not do that. Only God can tell of past events and how they fit into the future and future events and what will come. So he says, let them bring forth, bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us the things to come. Now who does this? Not the false gods, only uh, the Lord can do this. In verse uh, 23, he says, show the things that are to come hereafter. Who can predict the future but the Lord? That we may know that ye are gods. In other words, prove yourselves that you have this kind of uh, insight. See, God says to these, you you state your case. You state your case before the the, uh, heavenly court, before God's court. And you prove what you know about the past and the present and the future and how it'll all work out. God says, I don't believe you can do that. He puts them on the defense. And they can't prove anything that they're trying to prove. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are gods. Look, yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. And then he says, Behold, ye are nothing, and your work and your work of naught. You possess no reality. Isn't it amazing that people will put their trust in gods that have no reality and that are nothing and that cannot prove their case, that cannot stand up for what they profess to do. You know, all the gods of of the heathen are idols. And he says, You are nothing, and your work of naught. And abomination is he that chooseth you. The man that even chooses you is abomination. 
Then he says, I have raised up one from the north. Remember we spoke of the one that came from the north and the east. And he shall come from the rising of the sun, that's the east. Shall he call upon my name and he shall come upon princes as upon mortar and as a potter treadeth clay. We mentioned the one that he had predicted that was to come, Cyrus. Both from the north and the east are correct. And for while Cyrus originated from Persia due east of Babylon, his conquest of Babylon came from the north. And when he says, call upon my name, as this stands, it suggests that Cyrus acknowledged God in some way. Remember, we read that in Ezra chapter 1, verse 2, where he acknowledged God. Let me read it. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. So he acknowledged God in some ways. But you know, sometimes men acknowledge God and they just do that because it's convenient. He may have acknowledged the heathen gods as well. And though God used him, and he was in, in a sense his anointed of that particular time, though God used this king, we find that uh, it could be that Cyrus was a very shrewd politician and he played both sides of the, the street. He acknowledged all the local deities within the areas he controlled. So that's one thing for for him to acknowledge God in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And it's another thing for him to be seen as a man that would, you know, play politics and, and recognize the, the gods and the deities of those round about, of the areas that, under his control. Well, we have a lot of people playing politics, don't we? I mean, if you can get them on your side, just take advantage of them. They can be from China to Indonesia to Korea to... Uh, Bangladesh to wherever, it doesn't matter. Even Bosnia, Herzegovina, and all those areas. Russia, Germany, wherever. Just as long as you can play politics. But we shouldn't be, as Christians especially, we shouldn't be in playing politics. We should be true to God's Word. And the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. We all fit in one category. We're saved by His grace. And, and nobody's a big eye and a little little you, and so we should understand it from that standpoint. Now then, the Septuagint virgin, uh, virgin reads differently, namely that he was called, hence ordained by God. And some commentators feel this is consistent with what is said about uh, Cyrus. Now, that God called him to do a certain job, instead of him calling upon God and recognizing God. And God did call him. And we have some some uh, indication as to that. Now, no idol or pagan prophet could have made this prediction, but the events show that it is true. The prediction of what Cyrus would do. We find that there's no pagan god could have made that prediction whatsoever. So, of what is said here in the remainder of this chapter. So, what does he say in verse 25? I have raised up... One from the north, and he shall come from the rising of the sun, shall he call upon my name. And uh, God called on God called him as well as he called upon God's name in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. And he shall come upon the princes as upon mortar, and as the potter treadeth the clay. Who hath declared from the, from the beginning that we may know, and before time that we may say, He is, he is righteous, yea, there is none that showeth, yea, there is none that declareth, yea, there is none that heareth your words. The first shall say to Zion, Behold, behold them, and I will give to Jerusalem one that bringeth good tidings. For I beheld, 
And there was no man even among them, and there was no counselor uh, that when I asked of them could answer a word. In other words, all these idols and gods and and various um, powers that uh, were consulted could not give any answer as far as the real truth is concerned. It says, Behold, they are all vanity. Look at the last statement. Their works are nothing. Their molten images are wind and confusion. And that's as far as the gods of the heathen can take into nothing but confusion. Now then, in the 42nd chapter, let's get into this because this is the one I want to get into tonight. And uh, we find uh, the Messiah, God's servant, is mentioned here. And God's servant's described in this whole chapter of the 42nd. His character is elaborated in verses 1 through 4. And God addresses his people, verses 8 and 9. Finally, God calls the Jews in exile to rejoice in their coming deliverance in the verses 10 through 25. Cyrus was God's, indeed God's anointed for a particular thing in history, but the, the one that's anointed here is a different one. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this whole chapter is applied basically to him and then to well, I'd say to him and then to the Jews who were God's servant as well, but they were not, they didn't meet up the standards. If you'll notice down in verse uh, uh, 19, who is blind but my servant? This certainly does not refer to Jesus, but it refers to the character that's given to the Jews, the people of, of God. The Jews by profession were said to be God's servants. And we'll get into that when we get to that verse. But the first part of it definitely applies to Christ and the glories about Him and the things about Him. Now notice in verse 1 it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now we find that this is quoted in Matthew chapter 12 verses 18 through 20. And the New Testament clearly understands this passage as pointing to Jesus Christ. Now, Israel also is referred to in its highest ideal as a servant, God's servant, in chapter 49, verse 3. But the Son of God humbly assumed the position of a servant. Remember, the Bible says he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So it really is referring to Christ. Let's read that passage in Matthew 12 before we expound chapter 42. Look in Matthew chapter 12. I want to read, begin with verse 14 through 21. Because much of this is contained in the 42nd of Isaiah, but I want to give you this background and the application to Christ. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Now they wanted to destroy Jesus. But when Jesus knew it, now look at this. He, here's his action. He withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, and charged them that they should not make him known. Look at the character of this man. Charged them that they should not make him known. Well, that's a lot different than today, isn't it? <laughs> when the healing meetings are taking place. Make everybody know. And be sure and make a big noise about it and put it in the newspapers and announce it on TV and get everybody's attention. And charge them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled. Look at this. Which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, 
Behold my servant. Now, this is quoting from uh, Isaiah 42 that we're reading. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name shall the Gentiles trust. My, what a wonderful passage of Scripture. Now let's turn back to Isaiah and kind of expound what we have here in the 42nd chapter. Isaiah chapter 42. First of all, God says, Behold, my servant, behold with an eye of faith. Since we know it applies to Christ by reading that passage in the New Testament, we're to behold, we're to look with an eye of faith and behold to observe and to admire. The Old Testament saints were to behold. And now we must behold because we have fuller revelation of what this prophet is speaking about and who is speaking about. Can you imagine if God said to Israel of old and to His people of old, Behold my servant. Listen carefully to this. He said to them, Behold my servant. And then, you and I having a knowledge... Of Matthew's Gospel, and there's, that's just one reference in the New Testament. Uh, there's, there are several other passages that may, we may get to or may not. But if you need them, we can give them to you. But having the knowledge that we have, that this directly applies to Christ, how much more should we behold and observe who He's talking about that is His servant? You know, the Gospel of Matthew presents Christ as the King of the Jews. Mark presents him as this servant that we're talking about. Luke presents Christ as the man. And John presents him as God. King, servant, man, and God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Remember the first thing? Where is he that is born? What? King of the Jews. Where do you find that? Matthew. King of the Jews. Mark. If you study Mark's Gospel, you'll find all the way through it speaks of servant, servant, and straight way and forthwith he went and he did and if you read and I've suggested to you to read Mark's gospel through 16 chapters at one sitting because you can see the rapidity and the consistency of of Christ being presented as God's servant and then Luke how much more the man is brought into the picture and then John it doesn't how does it start in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God so we find all these things Coming through. But back to what we say here. Behold my servant. Behold my servant. In other words, God owns him. He says, my servant. He belongs to God. Remember Philippians chapter 2. It says, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Took upon him the form of a servant. Was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Then what does it say? Because of this humility, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee should should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you see him coming down, you see him going up. By the way, the way up is down. You say, preacher, how do you get that? That's true. With God. The Bible says, he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He that exalts himself shall be 
abased. That's God's way of doing it. Someone said, I wish I could get up the ladder in Christian service. Well, get down the ladder first and then you start going up. You get to the bottom of it and then you start going to the top. But see, a lot of people don't want to start at the bottom. They want to start at the top. I think that we all have to learn that lesson. And I can stop and preach on that for a little bit. I guess it better not. I'm supposed to be teaching this. Let's go on. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. He's not only God's servant, but as one chosen, he is his elect. He is one that he has chosen. Mine elect, whom I uphold. How did God uphold him? Remember when Jesus was baptized? What did... What did the voice from heaven say? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3, verse 17. And then, 17, 5, Matthew 17, verse 5, He says, what? This is my beloved Son, in whom, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigured before them, and His face did shine as the sun, His raiment was white as the light. And the Bible says that when God's voice from heaven, Matthew 17, verse 5, what did He say? This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well, well pleased. But He added something. Hear ye Him. See, this is My servant. He's My elect. He's the one uh, I uphold. And then He says, in whom My soul delighteth. God was delighted in Him. He was well pleased in Him. The Bible says that He does always those things which please the Father. That's more than anyone it can be said of any one of us. We do sometimes those things that please the Father, but we do not do always those things which please the Father. It'd be wonderful if we could, wouldn't it? But it shows that we're human, that we're frail, and that we're not perfect. And it shows that He was, He is and was, perfect. Christ. Alright, then it says in verse 1, I have put my Spirit upon Him. The Spirit qualified Him for His office. I have put my Spirit upon Him. Remember, the Bible says, He that whom God sent speaketh the words of God. For the Father giveth not the Spirit by measure unto Him. You and I have the Spirit by measure. A measure which we're able to receive. But He has the Spirit without any reluctance or without any exception. The verse we read a little bit ago or quoted to you in Hebrews chapter 1 concerning Christ. The Father said unto the Son, He said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness is a scepter of Thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness. Thou hast hated iniquity. Therefore, God, listen, even thy God, listen carefully, hath anointed thee with a spirit of gladness above thy fellows. That means the uh, anointing or the unction of the Holy Spirit was fully upon Christ without any lack of measure. 100%. Totally complete. And so Christ was, remember it says he was filled with the Spirit and he went into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. By the way, if you and I are filled with the Spirit when the devil comes, we won't have near as much problem. Because we'll have the power to deal with Him according to what? God's Word. And we'll use the same instrument that Jesus used. We'll be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and we'll take the Word of God and everything that He brings up. We'll just cut it off right there. That's what Jesus did. He said, turn these stones into bread. And what did Jesus say? He said, it is written. Where did He go? He went back to the book of Deuteronomy. Setting His approval upon divine inspiration of the writings of Moses. 
And he said, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live. And he goes back to that. Same with the other two temptations. So we find that his spirit was completely upon Christ. Now look at verse 1 again. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. The promise that we read in Matthew chapter 12, it says the same thing in verse 18, He shall show judgment to the Gentiles. And in verse 21, In His name shall the Gentiles trust. He was not, he's not only going to bring judgment to not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to all the rest of us, to you and I. See, all that are not Jews are Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. And so, we are of the heathen. That's what it speaks of. But God has made us different because of His grace. We're no longer classified as such. We're saved people by God's grace. Man, what a wonderful... You know, this is a good book, isn't it? It's a good book. It says, He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. I want you to notice this in verse 2. He shall not cry nor lift up his voice, lift up nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. He will come with silence and without noise. He will not lift up his voice in the streets. He's not trying to get the attention of the press. He's not trying to make a big splash. Have you ever noticed people that make a big splash? It's the worst dive you can make. Isn't that true? You watch these professionals, these guys that win the medals in the diving. Boy, they go down there and they hit it so perfect you don't see a, hardly a ripple of water. They just go in there like a needle. But the guy that makes a big splash, he gets the worst score, doesn't he? You see, sometimes that's the way it is in God's kingdom too. We've got people all over the country trying to make a big splash. Get the news and get the attention. But if you'll do what God wants you to do, you may not make a big splash, but it'll be more pleasing to God and it'll be more like Christ too. He didn't come to do that. In fact, he says, don't go tell anybody. Remember that in Matthew chapter 12? Listen, I could dwell on this. Look, in verse 16, and charge them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Esaias the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen my beloved in whom I, my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. That means that he wouldn't try to get their attention in that way. He went forth preaching and teaching, and multitudes followed him. But they did it because they heard something that they needed to hear. They pressed upon him, not to make him popular, but to hear the word of God. Remember, and he was out on the lake, uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. They pressed upon him to hear the word of God. So look at this. You know, wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if people would press to just hear what? The word of God instead of press to see what kind of music you have and how fast and how slow it is. How much entertainment you have. I like good music. I like good songs. We like to have good things going. But see, to press upon, to hear the Word of God. That's what we need today. You see, people are very... We have a world... I heard preach the other night. I don't know if I'm on the right course or not, but listen. I heard preach the other night. Just coming down and he was preaching on that, on that Christian broadcasting station. And everyone was saying, Amen, Hallelujah, and so on and so forth. 
And he's preaching on Matthew 24 and he says this gospel is going around the world because Jesus said he wouldn't come again until this gospel was preached around the world. I said, yeah, but fella, listen. What you're talking... I didn't say that to him because he couldn't hear me. But I was saying, I was saying, listen to myself. But you know what you're talking about, that it'll be preached around the world during the tribulation period. It's not talking about before the Lord comes for His own. He could come at any moment for His own. You see, you get off on some doctrine that's wrong, you're wrong on what you're saying. And so he was telling about, boy, God's fixing to do all this and that, and His Holy Spirit's coming on people, and I'd like to see people revived and more people saved. But just to use that as saying that the gospel is preached around the world before Jesus comes and not to think about the fact that He is going to come before everyone hears it for His own, and then the gospel is going to be preached for a witness to all nations. And then shall what? Christ come? Then shall the end come. The end. Well, now he quoted the end, but he he meant the end before Christ's coming. In other words, it, it was mixed up. In my opinion... But, uh, of course, that's my opinion. Let's get back to this. So, in verse 2, He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause His voice to be heard in the street. Look at this. This is the wonderful verse. A bruised reed shall He not break. A reed bruised. Why don't you just get another one? But He said a bruised reed. You and I like a bruised reed sometimes. But He's not going to break just because we're weak and not worth very much. He'd rather repair this one because we're worth it. He feels that every soul that he died for is worth the salvation he purchased. And so a bruised reed shall he not uh, break. And it says, and the smoking flax, the dimly burning flax, the smoking flax shall he not quench. That's which the candle or the wicks were made out of. If it had any ability whatsoever, he would rather fan it and bring forth. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. There's going to be a time that He will completely bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. You see that? Till He, till he have set judgment in the earth, and the isle shall wait for His law. In other words, there's a future time that is going to come when all the things that are wrong in society, and with the world, and with government, and with mankind, will be made right. Because He's the only one that can make it right. You know, we send people over there to the Middle East all the time, and they're still fighting. The peace process, they call it. And they're still killing people and bombing people. And you know, no one on this earth, and they look to our nation and because it is powerful, but still, even with all that and the influence of other nations that are great, Britain and other uh, nations that would have a part, and probably a lot of them uh, wouldn't think to name at this time. But even so, they they want our influence and our input. But yet, look what good it's doing. They still continue to fight and fume and and fuss over there. James says, "From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Even from your own lusts that war in your members." That's where that's where wars are, and that's where. It's from the inside of men that causes these wars. We talk about healing society or the world. The best answer is the individual basis. When you change individuals on the inside, you change what they do on the outside. You know, you can see people that 
that are good men, and you know what's wrong? You know what is good about that? Because you know what they're on the inside. You know that they what they are in public because of what they are inwardly. You know how they treat one another and love one another and care for one another? Where does it come from? It comes from inside the heart. It says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So he's not going to fail till he brings forth all of, uh, brings forth judgment. He will set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith the Lord God, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. Boy, I like that. You know, God's kingdom is spiritual. Jesus used no carnal weapons. Remember, they said, take your sword. Jesus said, put up your sword. He says, they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. By the way, that is still true. He didn't use carnal weapons. The Bible says, as far as you and I are concerned, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not carnal. But mighty through God, listen, Paul tells in the Corinthians, to the pulling down of strongholds, to the casting down of imagination, to bringing into subjection or submission every thought unto Christ. In other words, we bring our thoughts. By the Holy Spirit, we're brought into that condition. You know, when... Christ appeared. He didn't appear with pompness of appearance. Look at this verse again, verse 5. Thus saith the Lord God, God the Lord, He that created the heavens and stretched them out, He that spread forth the earth, and He that which cometh out of it, He that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. Did you know God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of lives? It is plural. And man became a living soul. He's different than all of the rest of God's creation, He gave life, soul life, to animals so that they live and they breathe, but not, not the spiritual life. That man became a living soul. He became a different kind of creature than all of other of God's creation. Man is different. A lot of people teach that he's not. We have cults out here that say when you die, you're like a dead dog or a dead cat or so on. Well, your body may be, but your spirit's not. And they fail to read the next verse in that passage in Ecclesiastes. They said, all go to one place. The spirit of man, the spirit of the beast, they go downward to the earth. Well, what it is. The beast died. But it says, who knoweth the... It says that man goes to the earth and the beast goes to the earth. But he says, who knoweth the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth and the spirit of man that goeth upward. See, there's a difference. It goes upward. It didn't stop there with death. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament where we have fuller revelation that the Spirit goes to be with God. In fact, it's indicated in the Old Testament too if they'd care to study it out. But they use that verse of Scripture to try to prove that man is like all other animals. You know what God said in the book of Job? Job says, that if God would... Let me read it for you. In the book of Job, chapter uh, 34, verse 14, it says this, If He set His heart upon man, if God sets His heart upon man, if He gather unto Himself His Spirit and His breath, if God gathers back to Himself His Spirit and His breath, God... God breathed out and gave... He breathed into our nostrils. He exhaled and gave us life. 
If God would inhale, we'd all die. God's held His breath a long time, hasn't He? He really has. Because it says, If He set His heart upon man, if He gather unto Himself His Spirit and His breath, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto dust. Isn't that amazing? We talk about there's just a breath between us and death. Yeah, and that breath is God. But you see, we pictured it in a lot of ways. In the book of First Samuel it says, there's but a step between me and death. We say a man's life is as a shadow. It's like a vapor that appeareth a little time and vanishes away. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man is the flower thereof. And the flower fadeth and falleth away. And But we find that that we all are living by God's breath, and we don't realize that. There's people going around, big men, you know, and they say, <clears throat> I'm all right. I'm, I've got health, and I've got money, and I've got power, and 